Are you everybody? It is 6.30. Dee Dee is here, so now we can begin. We are in Isaiah chapter 26. We are going to begin in verse number 10. That's where we left off last week. Isaiah 26, verse number 10. <clears throat> So if you recall the, the way we introduced uh, this series of chapters, um, what we're doing, it was a couple of chapters ago where Isaiah was very uh, harsh and rebuking, and then he's flipping the script now for a couple of chapters, he's being very optimistic and positive and uh, praiseworthy. So it's that back and forth, that's how we introduced it, I think it was last week, it may have been the week before, uh, how you have... Judgment and promise, punishment and promise, back and forth, going back and forth. So now we're in the middle of a positive side of it where uh, you're getting almost essentially like a psalm written by Isaiah. So we're right in the middle of that psalm in Isaiah 26, verse number 10. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So we're jumping right in the middle of a thought. I, I, we can't recover you know, our memories for the previous nine verses. We don't have the time to go all the way back over it. But um, you're, you're in the middle of this psalm. You're in the middle of this poem of praise to God. And as all, not all, as many psalms do, whether they're, you know, the ones from the book in of the book of the psalms or the ones that are just kind of sprinkled around the Old Testament, um, there's a lot of contrasting between the faithful people of God and the unfaithful people of God. And, and as Hebrew writers were very blunt, contrasting. We love you and they don't love you. You know they hate you, God, but we love you. That sort of back and forth kind of thing. So that's what you're in the middle of right here, where he says, if you, even if you extended your arm of fellowship to the wicked, even if you reached out an olive branch to them, even if godly people tried to be good, or obviously should be good, but tried to make peace with the wicked, the wicked would just slap it away. He will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, if the wicked was to come into a land of right doing, he would not be changed to be right. Instead, he would try to pollute it with his ungodliness. He will deal unjustly, and he will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Now, you might say, well, this is very pessimistic. It sounds like he's just writing off all wicked people. He's describing the environment of evil, the environment of sinfulness of which God, in which God's people are a small minority. And so it's this way of praising God for everything that was said in the previous chapters, how he's going to destroy the wicked, and we're thankful he's going to preserve us. And this poetic way of describing why is he going to preserve us. We've also made mistakes, yes, but we have learned righteousness. We have learned justness, and he will deal with us justly. And they who are unrighteous and who won't change, he will deal with them. Uh, according to their deeds. That kind, that kind of back and forth is the idea here. 26 verse 11. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. When you draw attention to yourself, come unto me all ye that labor, that sort of thing. They will not look at it. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of your enemies shall devour him. The, or devour them, the wicked. The Lord's hand will be raised an extension of, of offer, an offering, an offering of come to me, an offering of invitation, but they will not acknowledge it. Um, you could look at this in a couple of different ways because Isaiah uses the hand of the Lord in a couple of different ways. We alluded to this in the sermon last week. In Isaiah 59, the Lord's hand is outstretched. That's a positive thing. But also throughout Isaiah, he uses the hand of the Lord as an instrument of, of judgment and of punishment. 
So here is God showing his hand to the world. Now, is this the hand with which he will spank the world for its sin? Could be. In that case, the unrighteous disacknowledge it. They're disregarded. They don't care anything about it. So they're just asking for the spanking that's coming. Or is this the hand of mercy he's extending? Could be. If so, still, these wicked people who don't deserve mercy but still yet have it extended to them, don't acknowledge it. They disregard it too. Uh, either way, they want nothing to do with God. Instead, instead, when it comes time to actually see whether they want God or not, they will see the judgment of God. They, they have the chance to see God's mercy, but they don't want to see it. So they will see God's wrath, um, and the fire of, his, of your enemies will consume them. The metaphorical fires of God's punishment uh, will burn over them. Verse 12, Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you also wrought all our works in us. Previous verse, here's the wicked. Here's the enemy. They, they, they get your scorn. They get your, your, your contempt. They get your punishment. They get your hand of, of hard spanking. But for us, everything's great. We get your mercy. We get your peace. Because you have led us into all that we do. You have accomplished in us every good thing that's ever happened. We followed your every lead. Obviously, A, it's poetry. B, this is idealistic. Nobody would ever accuse Judah of following God's every lead. They wouldn't even be getting this letter if that was the case. The whole point of the book is you're all wicked and evil and you deserve to be killed. But the idealistic, the, the um, aspirational idea of the poem is these wicked people don't follow you, but we follow you. These wicked people get your judgment, but we get your peace because we love you and they don't love you. Verse 13, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only will we make mention of your name. Again, contrast between God and gods, between the Lord and lords. Obviously, Isaiah knows, everyone look at me, Isaiah knows that there is, it's all right, it happens, it's okay. Isaiah knows, like your phone has never rang before. Sorry. No, don't apologize. My phone will do it. My phone's done it in the middle of class before. Not a big deal. Um, there are there are other lords only when you make them a lord. I wrote a daily devo a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, uh, entitled um, "Anything's a God if you're stupid enough to worship it." Right? There is only one actual God. There's only one Lord that deserves the capital L. There's only one God that deserves the capital G. And yet, if you want to, that uh, marker board stand could be your God, and you could bow down to worship it. And you could cut yourself open and praise to it. And, Sacrifice your children to a fiery altar on top of it. Anything's a God if you're dumb enough to worship it. So these other lords all exist, yet there is, of course, only one God. So that's the acknowledgement, that, that contrast. Oh Lord, our God, other lords besides you have had dominion over us. We have been stupid enough to worship those false gods. But by your name only from henceforth, in other words, we will only make mention of your name. No more Ashtoreth, no more Moloch, no more any of these other gods, no more Baal. Now it's just Jehovah all the time. Verse 14. They, those other gods, are dead and they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Does anybody, well, I'll come back, hang on, let's finish the verse. Therefore have you visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Mine opens with parallelism, which is a Hebrew poetic way of saying the same thing twice to emphasize the point. You just word it slightly differently. They're dead, they shall not live. Mine says they're deceased and shall not rise. Anybody's Bible say that? Deceased and shall not rise? John? They are chased. 
Whoa, whoa. Well, uh, Galen, what's your say? Departed. Departed and shall not rise? They are shades. Shades? What did you hear, John? All right. The idea is they're, they are um, just a memory, and a memory that won't come back. They, they have faded away. I don't know why it says shades. I don't, have a, I don't have an answer for that, why it says shades. That's an interesting idea. I'll have to go back to that. But the idea is they're, they're dead, and they won't come back to life again. Not just they're in the physical sense. Obviously, we're, we're in poetry. You're taking the idea of this God, you're making a physical thing out of it, then you're burying that thing, and you're saying it's dead and buried, it won't come back again. But even the memory of that thing he's saying is faded into the past and won't come back. Therefore... You have visited and destroyed them and made their memory to perish. There's that idea. You won't, they won't be pulled back up. We're not going to dredge them back up. We're not going to bring them back. We've, we've been spanked. We've been put in time out. We've learned the lesson. And indeed, I've said this point before, of all the sins, you take all the, the various sins that Judah was guilty of, if God was writing them all down, they all led to one big problem, which put them in Babylon. And then they took all those sins into Babylon. And what came out of Babylon... The big sin that spawned all these was idolatry. I-D-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Right. That says idolatry. I idolatry spawned all these other sins. That spawned their, their cavalier attitude toward life, toward murder, toward, uh, toward uh, unrighteous living, toward immorality, and all sorts and so forth. It was this idea of let's introduce these pagan religions with their pagan customs and pagan laws. And when they got into captivity, they came out of captivity, and the one sin, they committed a whole bunch of these other ones for other reasons, but the one sin they never did again was idolatry. No. To, instead, they ran the opposite direction. They became Pharisees. They ran so far away from other gods and so far past the actual god, they started binding and making their own laws on behalf of Jehovah, which he didn't ask for anyway. And it's this constant pendulum swinging back and forth that is the history of God in Israel. But that's the idea of you've done all this to us and we've learned our lesson. And indeed, in that case, they did. No more idols for them. Verse 15. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have removed it far unto the ends of the earth. Now this, we're getting into... Some messianic prophecy here. Because what Isaiah is doing is he is picturing this idea of here, here is uh, Judah. Here is Judah going into the punishment. And Isaiah is looking back on it in the past tense poetically as if to say, uh, when, when Judah comes out of their punishment, when they come out of their timeout, or when they come out of their spanking with their butts you know, sore and they're rubbing their bottoms and they're saying... Okay, I deserve that. I deserve that. They're going to come out of it. They're going to appreciate what God did to them and what God did for them. And we're going to get some more of that in some very vivid Isaiah description here in just a minute. But he's saying, look, we came into this and now we came out of this. And then the result is something positive. The result is a nation that was broken and destroyed and worthy of condemnation, worthy to be wiped off the face of the earth, went into this captive state, exile in Babylon, and will come out of it a mighty spiritual, though he doesn't know it's spiritual when he writes it, mighty spiritual messianic kingdom. Because in the mindset of the, the, the Judean reader of Isaiah, the one who is faithful enough to even read his letter, we're going to go into captivity because we deserve it, and the Messiah is going to be there. Bring this open. The Messiah is going to be there 
with open arms, almost like standing at the gates of a renewed Jerusalem, standing there waiting to receive us, and he'll have a big crown on his head, and we'll look, and there, there will be the, the temple again, there'll be the palace of Solomon again, he'll sit on his big throne, and we'll start reclaiming all of our land, we'll start putting our boots on our enemies' throats, everything will be great again, well, this great big kingdom on earth again, and that just wasn't the Messiah they were thinking that they were going to get. That's what they thought they were going to get, but that's not what they got. They got a carpenter's son, and they didn't like him, so they killed him. So that's, that's this idea of the growth of the Spirit, the growth of the Messiah's kingdom here. When the Judean reads this, they're thinking, oh, the kingdom's going to blossom and blossom and blossom like it did under Solomon. Well, it will. In fact, it'll so far expand beyond everything Solomon could imagine, but it'll be in a spiritual way. It'll be a spiritual kingdom with souls being one, not... Uh, battles or victories. But that's that idea kind of coming out here. Verse 26. Oh, sorry, uh, 26, verse 16. <clears throat> Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. This is still, remember, you're reading a psalm, you're reading poetry. When we were spanked, we ran to you. We deserved our punishment, and we cried to you for help. In the midst of it. So in trouble, they, the King James says, visited you. What does your Bible say? <clears throat> Same thing? Sought. Huh? Sought. Sought? Yeah. We, it's, this, it's one of those rare times when God is the one who is visited. Usually in Scripture, it's He visited us. You know, God sent Moses to visit the people, or God visited the children of Israel. Solomon, or, uh, Stephen says in Acts 7, Moses was sent to visit the people. God reached down to the people. God looked after the people. But here... It's we sought for you. Here we reached out for you. We were put in our corner. We were put in time out. We, we did wrong. And when it was over, we ran to you. Isn't that the way it goes? You guys with parents who, and, uh, you parents who are uh, old enough to have kids old enough to spank and have them actually learn a lesson, you take your child, your toddler, or up to a you know, teenager when they do wrong, I don't know how socially appropriate it is to spank your teenager. Whatever the line is, they do wrong, and you spank them, and you put them in the corner. Let's not use teenager, because they wouldn't do that. Uh, well, yeah, sure. But where I'm going with it, it wouldn't work. Let's imagine Let's imagine an eight-year-old. That's a good age, all right? Your eight-year-old does something deliberately wrong. You have to discipline. You spank them. You put them in the corner. Now, they're crying because they're eight, and they got spanked, if you do it right. So when the spanking time is over, and you say, now come here... Intending to say, now what have we learned, what not to do, let's don't do it again. You're ready to say all those things. What's the first thing that happens? Is that child comes out of the corner and he wants a hug, right? Why does the child want that? You spanked him. Why do they want you to hug him? Because instinctively, naturally, a child wants to be hugged by his parents. Even the same parent who spanked them. It's not until they're teenagers that they start to break down the disconnect between the one who spanked me is also supposed to love me. When they're still a child, it's all blended together. They spank me and they love me. Those things fit together. And you've got to keep drilling that message home even when they don't believe it. You spank them because you love them. And therefore, you hug them because you love them. Those things are entwined. So, Lord, we who have been spanked and put in time out in our time of trouble, we still reached out to you. Because who else are they going to reach out to? They've already discarded their idols, right? They've got no other gods to turn to. The only God who they can rely on is the God who spanked them to make them relearn the lesson that he's the only one they can rely on. So we poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon us. I know the pronouns are turned the other way, but that's the idea. When their chastening was upon them, they reached out a prayer to the one who did the chastening. Now, you spank your child. What, what did your child do? Uh, what did your child do? I remember 
I remember my mother's mother, uh, Christmas Eve, we would always go to their house. It was always death because I had all these cousins I didn't know. There's so many cousins. And I'd go there, this small house, and everyone's bigger than me, and everyone's loud. There's such loud rednecks in that side of the family. So I'm, I'm there, and I don't fit in with their culture. They're all wearing camouflage and things like that. So I'm, I'm just sitting on the floor of the kitchen, trying to mind my own business, trying to stay out of trouble. And so I open the cupboard, and I pull out a pot and pan, as one would do. I start clanging the, the pot with, a, with a, a, a wooden spoon. Well, it doesn't take but two clank-clanks. That's it. That's all I get. Just two clank-clanks. And then immediately I'm scooped up, and I am told how terrible it was that I did that. It was a big thing. I still hear about it to this day. One clank-clank when I'm like seven years old. I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yeah. No, I remember now. I remember now. So I got in trouble for that, right? What's the point? What? I got my spanking. I got in trouble for that. But... Why? Why did I get spanked for that? This is, I'm, this is not a therapy session. I understand. I get it. What I'm trying to get you to see is I didn't have to get the spanking from my perspective. I didn't have to do wrong. It was not a big deal to me, but it was a, it was a rule that I broke. I made noise when everyone else was allowed to make noise, but I wasn't. Forget, forget. That's not the point. Not the, point. the point is I broke some arbitrary rule, and because I broke the rule, I deserved the punishment. But from my perspective, I'm sitting there rubbing my bottom thinking, well, I didn't, I didn't, that didn't have to happen. If I could go back in time, I wouldn't have done that, right? It's not like when you're going through an ordeal and you're, you're fighting through it as a family and you're getting stronger together and on the other side you come out and you say, I'm glad we went through that together because it really paid off and you could plant a flag at the end of it and say, we accomplished something, we got through that. This is, you got spanked because you did something stupid. Stop doing stupid things. You don't get to come out of it and say, well, we sure, you know, we really grew as a result of that. You, sh you didn't have to grow as a result of that. Don't do it. Don't do it at all. You idolatrous, wicked, murdering people. You got spanked for it. The lesson is don't be idolatrous, wicked, and murderers. And if you won't be, you won't need the spanking. You never had to go to Babylon. You could have stayed right where you were, but you chose to be sinful. So into Babylon you went, okay? All that said, look at verse 17 and 18. Like as a woman with child who draws near to the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her, the King James says, pang, a word which means sudden twisting, that kind of sudden sharp pain that I'm told a pregnant woman deals with, whatever. So, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Here we are suffering these sharp and horrible pains, right? Okay, next verse. Keep the thought. We have been with child. We have been in pain. And we brought forth, what, a son? We brought forth a daughter? See, a mother goes through labor pain. And when it's all over, she gets to hold a child in her arms. And as te te terrible and painful as I'm told that it is, at the end of it, what does a mother say? I do it all over again, right? Because as soon as you hold the baby, you forget all about the pain. It was worth it, right? Okay, here's Judah. We're going through all this pain, all this terrible pain, and at the end of it, we're going to give birth to what? A child? What does your Bible say? We brought forth what? Amen. It is what it is. That's what he's saying. We, we grunted, we screamed, we screamed, we groaned, hey, we farted. That's it. That's it. You went through all that just to break wind. You gave birth to gas. Now ask yourself, was it worth all the pain? 
You don't get to hold it and say, oh, my little baby. No, you got nothing. That's what Isaiah says. Again, I'm not making this up. We've been with, listen, if you think this is bad, wait till we get to Ezekiel one day. That man gets R-rated, okay? We've been with child, we've been in pain, and all we do is bring forth wind. We have not brought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. We have, we, with all of our sinfulness leading into Babylon, we accomplished nothing. We did nothing good. And we, we got through our punishment, we went through it all, and at the end of it, all we could say was, well, I wish that hadn't happened. That's why after your child does a bad thing, and you discipline them, and you hug them, then you say to them, don't do that again. Right? If they hadn't done it in the first place, they wouldn't have had to have been spanked, they wouldn't have had to go to the corner, they wouldn't have had to sit out of the activity, whatever the discipline is, it doesn't matter. The point is, if they hadn't done the bad thing, they wouldn't have needed the discipline. It was all for nothing. I'm not saying the discipline was for nothing. The discipline was for the, the, the sin. But the sin didn't have to be. You, you went through all that pain for nothing. You don't get to take the high road. You don't get to sit on the high horse and say, well, look at, look at how much we grew as a result of that. No, you're in the gutter right now. You deserve to be down there. You did bad. That's the idea here. Verse 19, but you go in and you'll come out. You go in, you're dead, and you're going to come out alive. Verse 19, your dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. I don't believe this is a literal resurrection chapter. I know we had a chapter ago or a couple chapters ago, we had the, the direct connection to Isaiah 53 and the actual bodily resurrection thing. But I think this is more connected like to back to verse 14 when he was talking about our idols are dead and buried and they're a memory. Well, in that same metaphorical way, Judah was a dead nation. But God brought them back. In that sense, it's like Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Can these bones live again? Well, God, you can do anything. And sure enough, he will. The nation can live again, metaphorically speaking. I think that's the connection here, poetically speaking. The dead of this nation will live. This dead body will arise. So, now raised to be a new nation, awake and sing. You that dwell in the dust, for your dew is the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. You will rise again. This is poetry here. He's telling this dead nation, go into the grave of Babylon and come out again to receive your Messiah and his new life. They don't know what that means, but that's the poetry of it. Verse 20. So, verse 19 ends with this, this dead nation coming up to life again. And what are they told? Come, verse 20. Come, my people. Enter into your chambers. Shut your doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is overpassed. The glory and the rejoicing and everything that will happen in verse 19 is fulfilled, it will not be fulfilled um, until the punishment of verse 18, just talked about, is finished with. So in the meantime, Isaiah says, go into your chambers and hide until the indignation is overpassed. So you've got to go through this punishment. Come and endure this punishment. Now, you might have this idea of, let's hide under our beds and maybe we can avoid the punishment. Let's run into our closets and hide and wait out this, this punishment. You cannot hide through it. You have to endure. You have to go through it. You can't try to, you know, uh, scrape off the edges and just kind of just take the little bit of it. You've got to endure the brunt of it. So when a child is punished by the parent, the child has to take the punishment. If you're in the middle of the punishment and you try to argue the punishment, you're going to get the punishment again until you learn the lesson. Because, verse 21, 
the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. You shouldn't have sinned. You didn't have to sin, but now I have to spank. I have to do the punishment. He will stir out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth because of their sin. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and there shall be no more covering of her slain. In other words, he will find you, he will try you, he will find you guilty. You can't hide. You can't conceal your crimes. All your bloodshed, all your dead, all the sin that you've ever done, the judge knows and the judge will use in the verdict against you. Your punishment is what it's going to be. We, we get the happy glory. It's coming. It's going to be great. But in the meantime, you have, to, you have to swallow your medicine. You have to take your punishment. And that's how the chapter ends. It ends almost on a cliffhanger with this idea of we deserve this. We have to endure this. And it will be better on the other side. But in the meantime... There's no running or hiding from it. It just is what it is. That leads us into chapter 27, verse 1. There's no chapter break in Isaiah. It's just the next statement, in that day. In what day? Well, again, 26, 21, God stirs out of his place. God punishes the earth for all of its sin that it did. And in that day, 27, 1, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent. Leviathan the crooked serpent and slay the dragon that is in the sea. And if you didn't think, if you, if you focus too much about chapter breaks and you just start at Isaiah 27 verse 1, you're doing like a daily Bible reading. And so you start a new day, Isaiah 27 1, you forgot all about chapter 26. You might sit there and think, what's this Leviathan? What is this? But when you forget, when you remember there's no chapter break and that one flows right into the other, Contextually, it's pretty clear this Leviathan is not talking about an actual physical being of the sea, but a metaphorical representation of the sinfulness of the people. That was what we just got through talking about in the previous chapter, and that's what we're still talking about here. In the day when God punishes you, here's what it's going to look like. Verse 1 in chapter 27. He will take his sword, described for you in three ways. It is a sore, S-O-R-E, my Bible says, sword, severe. That's how much damage it can do. It is a great sword, significant, the word means, awe-inspiring to see it. It is a strong sword, durable. It can withstand a thousand strikes against its enemy. So this unbreakable, awe-inspiring, able to cut all kinds of people's sword. It sounds a lot like Hebrews 4.12, the strength of the word of God, his sword. Anyway, he will use it to do his justice. He will use it to do his punishment, which we've already long established is punishing Judah for her sins. But here, poetically, it's described to us as this whale of a sinful nation. Except instead of whale, you get a different giant sea monster. It's just the same idea. We use the phrase, oh, the, the queen mother of something something, where we say it was a whale of a something. Well, here it's the leviathan of a thing. It's the leviathan of a what? Of a sinful nation in need of a spanking. All right? So God will spank the Leviathan. What is Leviathan? It's an allusion in this verse. It's an allusion to some great sea creature, some serpentine-like sea creature. It's, it's mentioned in Job, and you get references to it here. In Job, it seems like it's described as a thing which God physically created. Here, it's poetically described. We, whales are real. Whale of a good time, not an actual whale, unless you're a marine biologist. So different thing. That's the way Isaiah uses it here. All right? This is not about the animal. It's about the representation of the sinful nation. In that day, verse 2, in that what day? In the day when you punish sinners, sing God to the nation. This is Isaiah saying, let's hear from God now. 
Previous chapter, this was our psalm to God. God, thank you for spanking us. We've learned the lesson. Now we're going to move on and get better. That's our song to God. Chapter 27, now God sing to us. In that day, sing to her. And here's his song. It starts like this. A vineyard of red wine. All right, what about it? Verse 3. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it. Night and day. Keep in this word doesn't mean like possess, though that's certainly fine. It means to guard. I'll, I'll hedge it. I will fence around it. I will make sure it stays safe. That's why it says, lest any hurt it, I will keep it. So God is going to take this vineyard. Now, we've already had a song about a vineyard of God, chapter 5 of this book, way a long time ago. In that case, it was about how the vineyard became corrupted and ruined and marred by sin. That's what happened to Judah. Well, now, coming out of Babylon on the other side, the vineyard of the Messiah, the vineyard of the post-Babylonian nation, it will be a nation. It will be a vineyard which God preserves and waters. He will guard it, keep it. He will nourish it, water it. He will care for it every moment, night and day. What's that song we sing? I need thee, how often? Every hour. Well, now he's singing to you. I'll be with you every moment. Same song, just roles reversed. Verse 4. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I go through them. I would burn them together. Uh, 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 thorns and briars. There's a word. Yeah, thorns and briars are the enemies of a vineyard. They creep in there and they corrupt the, 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 the area. You try to keep that preserved. Well, here is God saying, I'm not scared of thorns and briars. I won't let them affect my vineyard. The opening of the verse is the most powerful moment. Fury is not in me. It sure was on this side of Babylon. We were getting nothing but God's fury. You're getting Assyria. You're getting Babylon. You're getting all this hardship and toil. But then when you come out of it, God says, ah, it's fine. You get your spanking, and it's scary. Imagine, think about, we're adults now. We spank our little bitty children. But think about from their perspective, this giant being is bringing their giant hand to their butt or whatever it is you're doing to spank them. It's a terrifying thing. But then when it's over, it's so important for the child to see tenderness on the same face that brought the hammer down, right? God says, I spanked you. You deserved it. But now I have no more fury. Now I'm going to wrap my arms around you. Now I'm going to protect you. Now when I see enemies, I'm going to defeat them. I'm not scared of thorns and briars and things like that. They come against me in battle, I will burn them. I'm going to take care of you. Why? What changed? God changed? God didn't change. I changed. Judah changed. Judah went through captivity, came out of the other side, saying we need to be more like God. That's a good recipe for God's fury to go away. Verse 5. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he, make, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Who? Who shall make peace with God? The thorns and the briars. The enemies of God's vineyard. See, here's where the, the readers of Isaiah would always kind of conveniently gloss over. Because they like to think of themselves as God's people. We belong to God. No one else does. we got 15 minutes. Good. They would say, all right, we're going to go through this punishment. We're going to come back to the other side. And we're going to be this vineyard of God. This hedged in, guarded, protected. No thorns and briars are going to get in. It's just going to be us, just like the good old days of Judah and God. Israel and God. Descendants of Abraham. Just descendants of Abraham by blood and God. And Isaiah keeps dropping his little hints here and there. 
Let's all go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Let's let's have all the let's be a light to the Gentiles. Let's bring in all these people. Let, let all these people come in. And the Jew would always kind of just kind of glance over that and think, it's going to be so great when the Messiah comes and we build this hundred foot wall to keep all the bad people out. And, and Isaiah says, yeah, there'll be a wall, but the gates will be wide open. And Isaiah or the Jew reading that thinks, yeah, well, we'll shut them though, right? We're not going to let anybody in though, right? No. Everybody gets in. The thorns and the briars that want to destroy my vineyard, I will burn them. But I will also invite them to stop being thorns and briars to come in. I will invite them to take hold of my strength so that they may have peace. And if they take me up on it, they will have peace. You see the contrast between God's song and how we started this class in the middle of the previous chapter. Man's psalm, the Jews' psalm, the Israelite, the Judeans' psalm to God was, your enemy hates you. They want nothing to do with you. It's just you and me, God. But when God sings to them, it's, I've got an enemy out there that hates you, but I'm going to invite them to be more like me. And if they want to choose, then we can have peace. That was never in their song. It was in God's song. Verse 6. He shall cause them to come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the whole face of the world with fruit. I'm going to take my people and I'm going to convert them into a seed and I'm going to scatter that seed across the world so that the seed of Israel won't be contained to Jerusalem, won't be contained to Judea. It will spread and blossom all over the world. It will become a fruit tree from which all peoples will pluck and eat. That's a global salvation. That's the kingdom of the Messiah. They were expecting it to be a national border, boundary. No, no. Verse 7. I'm going to read this in the King James, but it's going to be pronoun city. All right, here's what it says. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? All right, now let's, Frank, what do you have? Verse 7. He has struck them as he struck those who struck them. Ah, see, it's just as confusing. Everybody's just have a bunch of pronouns. All right, let's break this down. Now, mine phrases it in the form of a rhetorical question. Frank's makes it just a direct statement, but that's the same thing when you're doing rhetorical. But here's what mine says. Has God smitten, struck Je uh, Judah the way that he smote those that smote him? Has God struck in Judah the way he struck other nations that struck Judah? Okay. Um, uh, sorry. No, I, oh, I wrote it down. All right. I didn't read it right. Let me read it again. <sighs> Pronouns. Has God struck Judah as he smote other, as the other nations smote him? There, that's it, smote God. Or is he, Judah, slain according to the slaughter of the other nations that are slain by God? Let's, what is he saying? He's saying this. Have you suffered? Yes. Is your suffering as bad as the suffering of all the other nations? No, because all the other nations that Isaiah has threatened in his book are going to be put down and destroyed entirely. But this nation, my nation, are going to be struck but not destroyed. He hasn't struck them the way he struck everybody else. He's going to bring them back well, the way he read earlier, resurrect them from the dead, which they don't get to have that. Only Judah gets that. They will be brought back. That's what makes them special. They get to come back because they're a faithful remnant, whereas like Moab and uh, Edom and all these other nations, Assyria, Babylon, they don't get that privilege. Only a segment of God's nation, only a piece of God's pie gets to come back from all of this. That's what he's saying. In other words, you cry and you whine, you complain about your punishment, but it could be a lot worse, is what he's saying. All right? Verse 8. 
In measure, when he shoots forth, you will debate with it. He stays his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Those who are punished by God, Jews especially love to do this, might want to argue with God. And may want to debate the punishment itself. They want to argue, is this too much? Is this excessive? You see this all over in the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Is, is God going overboard? Do we really need all this punishment? Uh, so he will shoot for this punishment, and then he will remove it the way you would remove uh, the, a rough wind would, would blow away and then it's not a rough wind anymore. So that's what's coming. But in the middle of that, these stubborn people might say, do we really have to endure all this? A telltale sign that they have to endure all this. So that's the, the, the attitude of many of the nation. In the, middle, in the middle of their punishment, in the middle of their suffering, they might think, I'd like to argue whether we really need this punishment. That's a good way to get five more minutes in time out in Babylon. All right, verse 9. By this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. Do we really need all this punishment? Yes, you're dying of cancer. I'm going to cut it out. It's painful, but you'll live. Yes, you need the punishment. You have iniquity, and I need to purge it. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, and the groves of the images shall not stand up. Do we really need all this punishment? Yeah, because you really have a whole lot of false gods. You have idol monuments all over your land. And the punishment, knowing that it's over, will be seen when you come back to the land and you just start destroying all those idol monuments. You start destroying all the, my Bible calls them, altars like chalk stone that you're breaking into dust, crumbling the stone until it's just a powder there's no more monuments to this God or that God or that God over there. And when that's happening, not a one of them is going to be saying, but did we really need to go to Babylon? Everyone who comes out of Babylon is going to be saying, okay, we, we needed that. We needed to learn that lesson. It's only those who are going to die in Babylon or die before they get to Babylon that are the ones who are going to say, do we really need Babylon? You're the ones who aren't going to make it. Verse 10. Yet the defensed city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down and consume the branches. This is the picture of what Jerusalem and the surrounding area will look like when everybody has gone to Babylon. What will become of the promised land? What will become of this place that you promised us? Do we really need to go all the way out here? What will become of our land? I'll tell you what will become of your land. It will be a wilderness. It will be a desolate place. It will be this... Um, described here as a place where calves lie down and just sleep in the middle of what used to be a road. And there'll be no one around to say, get out of here, cow. This is a, a city. Because it's not a city anymore. It's an ex-city. It's a former, uh, you know, residence. Now everybody's gone. It's a ghost town. That's what happens. So it, Judah is described as the city. It's described as this great tree whose branches, because of their sin, wither and crumble and become brittle. Look at verse 11. When the branches thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. Women come and break them and set them on fire. Because you, Judah, are a people of no understanding. Therefore he has made them, sorry, therefore he that made them will not have mercy on them. And he that formed them will show them no favor. These are the rebellious ones, the, the sinful ones, the ones who aren't repentant, but the ones who are saying, do we really need this punishment? You're going to get the full brunt of it. Yeah, you need it. So... You're like a tree who's withered and you've lost all of your nutrients. You're no longer feeding on the, 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 what God provides, so you're brittle and you're old and you're so weak. Isaiah says that a woman could come by and break your branches. That's how weak you are. Because you're weak, women. What do you think? I didn't hear you just said. That's how weak the tree is. 
It's, I mean, it's just Old Testament stuff. Different culture. Verse 12. Deborah was a strong woman. You get her at least. All right. Verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat away from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and he shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. The tone changes here from sad to happy, from a destroyed land to a land that gets to be renewed, from a people who are unrepentant and deserve everything they're getting to the people who were repentant, who get to come re-inherit this land. The King James says, God shall beat away fresh, uh, which is what you, you take like a club or something and you smack it against the side of a tree um, to strike an olive tree to make the olives fall. And that's what God is doing here. Hurts the tree, but you get to collect the pure olives. So God's going to start harvesting His people. He's going to thresh them from point A to point B. And He will move from the channel of the river, that's the Euphrates, which in the, the, big, the, the greatness at the peak of the um, territory of Solomon's kingdom, 1 Kings 4, it reached to the edge of the Euphrates River. So God says, I'm going to take as big as you've ever been all the way to the other end unto the stream of Egypt, Wadi El Arish in the uh, original tongue. The Wadi El Arish is the southern boundary as big as Israel ever got. So God says, I'm going to stretch out as far as you can be to start plucking those who are righteous and those who are favorable. And everyone else will be condemned. But those that I pluck, those olives that are good, will make it. Verse 13, last verse. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. All these previous metaphors and ideas all come to a head here. Christ, the Messiah to come. After you come out of Babylon, He's going to be threshing the trees. He's going to be plucking those who are faithful and righteous to become part of His kingdom. But it's not just going to be those who belong to Jerusalem or even just the Judean nation region. But He's going to stretch all the way out until anybody who wants to belong to the Messiah can belong to Him. This great trumpet, a rallying call, will be blown. And anyone all the way in Assyria... Or even all the way in Egypt, anywhere you may go, will be invited to come up to the mountain of the Lord. Cross-reference to chapter 2 of this book. Let's all go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's all worship the God of Jacob. Because that's where salvation comes from. Salvation is at Jerusalem, but it's spiritual Jerusalem. The holy mountain of God's new house. Salvation is of Jerusalem. Spiritual Jerusalem. The holy people of God. But salvation begins with Jerusalem. That physical city is where it started, Acts chapter 2, but it didn't stop there. It spread all the way out to the world. So that's the idea, that the Messiah, you're going to inherit your Messiah, but it's not going to be this closed box where only those who are circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Abraham, etc., only they get to come in. No, the gates are open wide, and we're going to fan out to collect anyone who wants to be a pure olive threshed by the Lord. All right, that's chapter 27. We'll pick up with 28, which starts kind of a new mini-section. We're slowly inching our way toward the end of this first half of Isaiah. We're building and building this picture of a nation that needs God. He's in the good and He's giving them the bad. He's giving them the bad, which is, I'm going to spank you and punish you. It's going to be terrible. He's giving them the good. If you'll turn to me, everything will be great. And looming like this dark cloud that's inching closer and closer is the Assyrian army. And I mean it's looming. If I'm reading Isaiah, if I'm hearing him on the street corner, preaching these words, the news reports are coming. Here's Judah. Here's the Jerusalem. And Assyria is slowly and steadily marching their way south. And this nation looks unstoppable. How can we ever survive? We need to make alliances with Egypt. We need to make alliances with Assyria. We've got to stop Assyria. And God says, I'll be your Savior. I'll be your Huckleberry. Just turn to me. 
but nobody wants to. And so we're building and building and building until God, I'm, I'm going to let you go. God gets to this point where he says, I threatened you, I promised you, I'm just going to have to show you how great I am, how much I'll protect you. And in one night, he'll take out the whole army. But we're not there yet. That's the end of this section. That's where we're building and building and building to. All right. Next week, chapter 28. Go, go, go. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right, thank you.